Well, amen. Take your Bibles uh, this morning and turn to Acts chapter uh, 16. Acts chapter 16. Y'all doing good? That's pretty good. All right. And also find 2 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. Hold your place in both of those places and I'll explain more what's going on there in just a few moments. But again, I want to say happy Mother's Day to all our moms. And listen, just before I say this, they deserve way more than a golf clap. All right. So let's just put our hands together and show some appreciation for our moms today. We appreciate everything that you do. Listen, uh, being a mom is up there with the top toughest jobs on the planet. Uh, I know that uh, myself because every Thursday for the last 14 years of my life, I have uh, been Mr. Mom all day Thursday while my wife works on that one day from sunup to sundown. And so I pick them up from school and I uh, get them fed and I get them in bed. And then I just wait for mama to come back through the door. And it's the most beautiful sight I've ever seen every week. I just remember how thankful I am for everything that she does. Uh, but moms, we salute you today. We appreciate all that you do. Uh, I would not be standing right here as your pastor today had it not been for a Jesus loving, praying mama in my life. Um, the church is all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. Uh, we know that, but Christ has used through the centuries uh, a lot, countless amounts of praying moms who have had influential forces for the gospel in the lives of their kids. Can anybody just attest to that, a praying mom in their life who, uh, three of us this morning, is that all? All right, there we go. That's a little better. All right. It's just true, right? Mothers play a... Um, a critical role in the spiritual formation of their kids. And that's not just true for moms, it's true for dads. Uh, it, we, we all are in a position of influence. There's certain people who God's placed around us. You may not be uh, a mom or a dad this morning uh, and have uh, children that are under your care or uh, adult children, but you uh, probably some type of spiritual parent or have people who you have influence in their life. And, and so uh, we're acknowledging that this morning. We're acknowledging uh, that uh, parents uh, make an impact. We're acknowledging that grandparents uh, make an impact. But uh, we are going to talk a lot about parents this morning. You know, there's really nothing else that impacts the life of a kid than their parents. And hence the reason why we're going to be uh, preaching uh, on this on Mother's Day in just a few moments. But uh, I, I really do hope that even if you're not a mom this morning, even if you're not, again, a, a dad or, or even a grandparent, I, I hope that this is helpful to everybody. I hope this is helpful to uh, those of you who are uh, brothers, sisters, uh, aunts, uncles, uh, again, spiritual parents. I hope this is something that all of us walk away encouraged by this morning. Now, one of the reasons why I'm going to, because if you've been paying attention, we are not where we left off in Acts, all right? So we're in Acts 16. And one of the reasons why I'm going this route is because uh, I uh, opened my, my books and when I realized uh, the passage that we were in, the very next part in Acts, it's about a really eccentric, odd person named Simon the Sorcerer. And I sat in my office wondering, how in the world do we talk about Simon the Magician, the Sorcerer on Mother's Day? All right, how does that even make sense? And, uh, and so this is why we're going to go this route this morning. However, before we leave, we are going to learn from Simon the Sorcerer this morning. So stand with your Bibles open. And hopefully all this will make sense by the time we're done this morning. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, it says, Paul came also to Derbae and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. 
uh, and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now let's flip over to First uh, Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy, chapter uh, one, and I'll begin to read in verse one. It's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember constantly, you constantly, in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see that I may be filled with joy. Now, hear this. I'm reminded of your what? Sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois. And your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray that this morning, I just pray this, that you would protect this room from this man's opinion, that your word would speak. We need your word to speak. Your word says in John 17, 17, that we're sanctified by your truth and your word is truth. So we pray that your word would speak into our hearts today, that we'd have teachable hearts, and that your spirit would take this service, would use this time together to mold us and shape us uh, in, more into the image of your son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this first passage that we read just a few moments ago, you know, I mentioned this and uh, you know, that we've hit fast forward, right? We've, we've covered a lot of ground, you know, from where we left off when we were together last, last week in chapter eight. And we fast forwarded to a part in Acts where we're introduced to someone else in Acts and his name is Timothy. If you know anything about Timothy, you know that Timothy uh, goes on to be an, an apprentice of the apostle Paul. He did a lot of great work in the kingdom of God. He was used greatly in the early church, in the life of the early church. Pastored one of those influential churches in church history, really, but in the first century, the church at Ephesus. And he apparently accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior when the apostle Paul came to his hometown, preached the gospel, and you know, it, it, at some point, right? And, and when Paul comes back through that area, so he's preached, Timothy saved, Paul moves on. Paul at some point comes back through his hometown and hears about Timothy. Here's about this guy who got saved. Here's about this guy who's growing in the Lord. Here's about this guy who's pouring into other people, who other people are, are respecting and, and look up to, who is a godly man. And Paul sees something in him and he says, hey, pack your stuff. I want you to go with me. And so he uh, invests in his life. He disciples him. And He's one of the only, one of the few disciples that uh, Luke and, and Paul give us a, a lot of background about his upbringing, about his family life. And so, you know, hence this being a Mother's Day sermon, we're going to learn a lot about his upbringing this morning. In Acts 16, it says this about Timothy. It says Timothy's uh, uh, mother's mentioned, and it just says that she's a godly lady. It doesn't really say much about her name or, 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 or anything else. It just gives us really the most important part about who she is, and that's that she's a follower of Christ. She apparently received Christ as Paul went through that area and preached the gospel, says she's a Jewish woman. Uh, we get the impression that she's a godly lady, that she's someone who revered God, respected God, knew the word. She was awaiting the Messiah to come. And here Paul comes into town. He's preaching the gospel and she hears it and her heart's ready and she rece receives it. And she believes. And then at some point after she believes the gospel and receives it, um, Timothy believes. And we also learn a little bit uh, there about his father, that his father was Greek. That's all we know. And that is there to help us understand the circumcision thing, which was, I'm sure was an awkward conversation we won't get into this morning to have with uh, adult Timothy there. But uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of scholars believe that his dad is, is 
possibly dead at this time or, you know, that this is uh, because of the way that the past tense is used there in verse 3 in that first passage that we read. We don't really know, but we do know that he's out of the picture. We do know that his father is not in his life, that his father has not had much of a spiritual impact in his life, but his mom was godly. His mom loved Jesus. His mom pointed him to Christ. And then in 2 Timothy, we will learn a, learn a little bit more about Timothy. Paul writes these letters to Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and we learn that his mother's name is Eunice. We learn that his grandmother's name is Lois and that both of them were godly ladies, that there was a faith that they possessed, that dwelled in them, that first was possessed by them, that was then passed on to Timothy. And it's like Luke and Paul take time to explain some things about Eunice and Lois because they want us to know something of the impact that they had on Timothy's life. And, and how did they have such a big impact? Well, in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 14 and 15, you can turn there, just write that verse down. 2 Timothy 3, 14 or 15, it says this, but as for you, he's talking to Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and from childhood, you have been acquainted with what the sacred writings, which uh, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So right here, it shows us that from an early age in this home, being raised and spiritually influenced by a grandmother and a mother who loved God, they, were, they raised him to understand and taught him Sacred writings. What are sacred writings right there? What does that mean? That was an, a way of referring to the Old Testament. That's just a way of referring to the scriptures. So they, it instilled into his life from a young age the word of God, who God is, the principles found in the word of God. And it prepared his heart. I love that way that it says that acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, they acquainted him with the word of God that made his heart ready for when he heard the gospel, he received it. He repented and he trusted in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And what we're learning from them is this. What we learn from Lois and Eunice is this, that parenting or grandparenting or spiritual parenting, that it is a missional endeavor. It is a missional endeavor. That this is a part of the mission of God that God has called us to. We talk about sharing our faith. We talk about the responsibility of Christians that we have to go out into the world and be on mission for Jesus Christ. To point people to Jesus Christ through our word and through our deed. And this little part of scripture, this little part of the New Testament, it reminds us that sharing your faith starts at home. Sharing your faith, the mission starts with those who are in closest proximity to you. And One point from Timothy's situation that can be applied to our lives on this Mother's Day is to learn how we can best live on mission in our home or with those who are in the closest proximity to our life. And we learn one important thing, right? One point sermon this morning. Don't get too excited. Doesn't mean it's going to be all that much shorter than usual, okay? But a one point sermon this morning, and it's this, the importance of possessing sincere faith. That we, in order to have an influence, this really applies to any part of your life as a disciple and you influencing others, especially in the home, that you will not have a gospel impact there if you do not possess and live out sincere, genuine, authentic faith. There's power in that, but you got to have it. 2 Timothy 1.5, that's where we see that word. Paul calls Timothy's faith sincere. And then he points out that that kind of sincere, genuine faith wasn't just first seen in Timothy's life. It was passed down to him by a past generation and passed down to his mom by a former generation, by her mother, by his mom and his grandmother. 
So Timothy possesses a sincere faith that was passed on to him. And the question that we need to ask this morning is this. Do I, this is such an important question. Do I possess a sincere, genuine faith? Do I possess a genuine faith? The Bible talks a lot about authenticity. The Bible talks a lot about real faith. The Bible talks a lot about sincere faith. The Bible talks a lot about genuine faith. Why does it spend so much time talking about real, authentic faith? Why? One reason is to help us understand that there's such a thing as insincere faith. That there's such a thing as fake faith. That there's such a thing as faith that is not real. And from the very beginning of, we've been studying the birth of the church, the New Testament church in Acts. We've been in this study for several weeks now. And from the very beginning, as we move forward and through the rest of the, the New Testament, what we see is example after example of people who possess genuine faith. People who got it. People whose lives collided with the gospel in a real way and God began a transformational work that began from the inside and worked its way to the outside. Genuine, real, sincere faith. But it also gives us a long list of people who had insincere faith. People who had phony faith. People who looked a certain way on the outside, but under the hood, on the inside, it was a different story. And here's here's what's interesting. The very next section we study in Acts is... Focusing on a guy who serves as an example of phony faith. In fact, let's turn there. Let's turn to Acts chapter 8. So I know we're hopscotching around scripture this morning, but jump over to Acts chapter 8. So we fast forwarded. Now we're going to rewind. We're actually going to rewind back to the place where we were just looking at the Apostle Paul in the future, whose name now, it was the Apostle Paul. He went through those towns. He preached the gospel. God used him in mighty ways in the kingdom of God. But as we're rewinding, we're remembering that what we find here in Acts chapter 8 is a pre-conversion Paul, whose name was Saul, who was a Pharisee, who terrorized the church. In fact, that first section there talks about how he ravaged the church. And because of his ravaging of the church, God actually used that to fulfill his will for the church, which was what? For the church to scatter abroad, which they weren't doing. They were hanging around in Jerusalem a little too long. And so Saul comes along, persecutes them, which is bad, but God takes something bad and makes it good and sends them out. They scatter because of this persecution, but they get out into the places where they needed to be spreading the gospel anyway. So in verse four, it says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. So Philip has gone to Samaria. Now, at first glance, you may have grown up in Sunday school and you're like, that doesn't sound too radical. That doesn't sound like a big deal. Good Samaritan, right? That had to be a pretty easy place to preach the gospel. No, no, not so. All right. This was a difficult and dangerous place for someone to travel into, especially someone who was a Jew. All right, so uh, the Samaritans and the Jews, there's a long, there was a long-standing history of just division and ugliness between uh, those two areas, centuries of just old racial and theological divisions that ran deep. I mean, if you were a Jew, you wouldn't even sit on the same thing a Samaritan would sit on. That's how unclean you thought a Samaritan was. The Samaritans loved to antagonize Jews. They would do crazy things. One of my favorite things is they would launch catapult pigs into, like live pigs, into the temple of the Jews. Which to us, we're like, that's not, that's not offensive. That's like free bacon. Like send another one, you know what I mean? To a Jew, that's very offensive, all right? Big deal. 
So it was a big deal that Philip is crossing those tracks and going into Samaria and he's preaching boldly. The Spirit's filled him and he's going in and he's preaching the gospel to this enemy nation. And yet the Samaritans are hearing the word of God. They're receiving the gospel and it's spreading. And I love what it says in verse eight. It says, as a result, there was much joy in that city. Man, we could camp out there all morning, right? A gospel joy and unity begins to overwhelm a city and begins to wipe out years of racial, racial tension, years of hurt, years of mistrust. That's a message for our culture today that what politics is unable to do, the gospel can accomplish. Don't underestimate the power of us going into our community, of us going into our homes, of us going into our city, of us going into our workplaces, of us going into our nation. Wherever God has placed us, the church in America today, don't underestimate the work that the gospel can do to tear down walls of division. Look what it says in verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. That's a great guy to be around. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him, though, and from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great, is the power of God that is called great. Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So we run into this very eccentric guy in Samaria named Simon. It's the only place we find him in Scripture. Uh, he's here and then he's gone. We don't read much about him. We know a little bit about him from church history, but this is the only place in scripture we find anything about him. He's evidently kind of the David Blaine, David Copperfield, Harry Houdini of Samaria. All right. Either Harry Houdini or like Harry Potter or a little bit of both. All right. So uh, he, we're not sure. He possibly he's doing uh, he's doing signs and he's doing uh, things that are amazing people. You know, it says magic there that may be more uh, referring to like the occult power of demons and Satan that was going on uh, in Acts or in the early church for sure in that area of the world. Uh, but it may have been more, you know, some uh, illusions. He may have been just doing things that were wowing people and the people regardless, the people thought he was great. People were just following this. This guy was a celebrity. Right. This guy had. More followers on Twitter than anybody else. All right, this guy had more hits and views on his YouTube videos than anybody else. Everybody knew about Simon the sorcerer, or who they would call Simon the Great. He, everybody thought he was great. Even Simon thought he was great. All right, he called himself great. That's the way he introduced himself. I'm Simon the Sorcerer. You can call me Doctor Awesome, Doctor Great. Here's my card. Right? Maybe he gives the card and it turns into a bouquet of flowers. I don't know, but he thought he was great. But things start to change when his followers, those masses of people who followed him and thought he was the best, they began to get saved. And their hearts began to turn and worship someone else, began to worship Jesus, began to submit their lives to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And Simon Right here, it checks, he checks out what's going on, and it seems like something exciting happens right here. It says in verse 13 that even Simon the Great believed. And it says after, what, look what it says, after being baptized, he continued with Philip. He professes belief. He gets baptized, and it says seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. It's ironic, isn't it? Simon, the one who amazed, is now being amazed. And this had to be exciting, right? The great wizard of Samaria has been saved. Simon, the magician, has professed faith in Jesus Christ, has been baptized, and it looks like he's starting his discipleship process because he starts following Philip. But was it real? Was it real? 
Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for they had not yet fallen on any of them. So the Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, we got a time out there for a second. We can't just move on past that. There's been a lot of division in the Christian world over the verses that I just read you. What's going on there? Right? There's, it seems to be a gap between the moment that these new believers believe in Jesus Christ and when they receive the Holy Spirit. There seems to be this period of time. What does that mean? Does this mean that the doctrine of the second blessing taught in Pentecostal theology is real? Is right? Well, let me just say two things. There's an overwhelming stack of biblical evidence that teaches us that once you receive here in the age of grace, when you receive the gospel, when you turn from your sins and you throw the full weight of your faith on Jesus Christ and you're born again, that in that moment you receive the Holy Spirit. You receive all of the Holy Spirit you will ever get. We believe that. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, write that down. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, write that down. Romans 8 and 9, write that down. Those are just a few verses. But second, also remember that here at the beginning of Acts, we made the point that everything in this very unique time in our church's history, that everything that's described doesn't necessarily mean it's prescribed. Just because it's there's a description here doesn't mean there's a prescription for it to happen today. So this is one of those situations to where it's not going to be normative for the church to experience this moving forward. There were some other places we pointed that out in the first uh, couple chapters. So why do Peter and John go down to Samaria? Here's why. Because as apostles of the church, they have been put in a position as Eyewitnesses to Christ, the ones who were there at Acts 2 in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured out for the first time into the lives of believers. And they're there to verify, to really authenticate what's taking place there, to make sure that the gospel has certainly been received. And they're also, and this may even be the bigger reason why they're going down, they're going down because of the tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. They need to be there to send a message. As they lay hands on these Samaritans, and it's really to send a message to the Jewish nation and also to the Samaritans. Listen, this, is, this gospel movement is a global movement. That this is for everyone. Had they not done that, and those Samaritans had been, at the very beginning of this movement, had been filled with the Spirit, the division that was there, it very well could have sent them in another direction. They could have gone and began the Samaritan church and the Jewish church and missed what all this is about. This is a global movement. Everyone who's in Christ Jesus is part of the same team on this earth and in this world. On the same mission, we are part of the same family. That's why they go down and lay their hands on them the way that they do. Well, look at verse 18. All right. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, <laughs> saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone who I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God. With money. Wow, here we go. Simon's true colors come out, don't they? 
Simon sees the apostles laying hands on these new Samaritan believers and see the Holy Spirit rush in to their life. And instead of giving glory to God and glorifying him for this wonderful thing that he's watching, it would have been, it would have been a miraculous scene. There would have been signs, wonders. It would have been electric. It would have been something to see. Instead of glorifying God, his response is, man, that trick would really help my show. And he pulls Peter to the side basically to say, hey, I could really use it. Man, this could be my left hook. This could be the thing that really gets my name out there even more than it already is. And he wants to make a deal with him. He's like, let's make a deal. Peter, name your price. Show me, show me how you do this. Give me an inside look on how this works. And so he takes out his checkbook, name your price for the younger people in the audience. Took that, takes out his debit card. All right. So he, he said, basically name your price. Tell me how much you want. And his true motives are exposed. And here's the bottom line is this. He professed Jesus, but it's clear right here that he wasn't possessed by Jesus. He professed true faith, but didn't possess sincere faith. And this is a scary part of scripture. You know why? Because we see a guy right here who goes through all the right motions. We see the guy, a guy right here who fools his friends, who fools his community, he even fools this preacher. He gets the preacher to baptize him right here. Philip, who has sincere faith. And Philip baptizes him, but it shows us that not everybody who professes Christ, not everybody who gets baptized, not everybody who attends a church, not everybody who goes to Sunday school is necessarily converted. And this kind of phony, insincere faith, it kind of looked like this. It was kind of like the prosperity gospel a little bit. He's basically saying, hey, I want to put in his mind and in his heart, he wanted to put God in his debt. Like, I'll sow my time, I'll sow my money. That's what he's doing right here. And you're going to owe me like God owes me something. Like, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give. I'm going to do my best to do everything right. And in return, I want you to bless my life with health and wealth and happiness. And if you, listen, then we respond like this, God, if you don't come through on that, then you're letting, you're letting down on your end of the bargain. And you play that game and you, you, you don't have a sincere faith. Your life is not surrendered to God. You're trying to use God like Simon is trying to get something instead of surrendering your life to God. So Simon looked the part, but in his heart, something else was going on. It was almost like he was approaching God like a divine pinata. And if I hit this thing right with profession of faith, if I hit this thing right with enough prayer, if I hit this thing right with going to church enough, if I hit this thing right with being around enough godly stuff, listen, then he's going to give me what I want. What does he want right here? He wants, he wants a, the approval of man to come just showering down on his life. He wants more power to come down on his life. He wants a more lucrative business to come down on his life. He wants to come busting out of that pinata everything that he worships over God. And he's trying to use God to get the stuff that his heart really idolizes. But someone, listen to this, who truly has received the gospel realizes that the candy that comes out of the pinata is Jesus. A true disciple understands that when you come to Christ, when you receive the gospel, when you come to God, you come to God for God. A true, sincere disciple values God more than what they can get from God. They want the giver more than the gifts. God is not our butler. God's not a genie that gives, that grants our wishes to make our life better. And it really makes sense if you think about it. Imagine you had a friend who had a lot of money. Wouldn't that be nice? Just a friend who had a lot of money. 
a generous best friend who loved you, who had a lot of money, millions of dollars. And it's a, a friend who's single and, and you are friends with them and you watch someone else come into their life, that special someone who just seems head over heels in love for your rich friend. And you see them fall in love and then uh, through a series of unfortunate events, that rich friend loses everything that they have, everything gone in a short amount of time, including that person who was so in love with them. They're MIA. Now, what counsel would you give to your sad, devastated, formerly rich friend? What would you say? You would say, man, this is sad. We're going to walk with you through this. Hey, but at the end of the day, let them go. They were a gold digger. We saw it the entire time. They didn't stick with you. You may have cared for them. You may have loved them, but it wasn't reciprocal. They used you. They manipulated you. They didn't care about you. They didn't care about you at all in a relationship with you. They just wanted your stuff. They were using you. And in the same way, listen, God is never interested in being manipulated into giving us what we want. God isn't interested in just coming on board with our plans for our future, for our life, to give us everything we want for him to do, everything that we want him to do, and then for us to just discard him when he doesn't deliver on that. And yet how often, in in my time in ministry, which is about 16 years, have I seen people seemingly run to God in desperation, with a seemingly surrendered heart when their life falls apart. When they got marriage troubles, man, they seem so desperate for God. They seem so surrendered. They seem so sincere. And yet as soon as those marriage problems disappear, so do they. As soon as those, hey, as soon as those problems with their their kids disappear... So today, so today, what happened? They got what they wanted and what they wanted wasn't God. What they wanted was a repaired marriage. What they wanted was a peaceful home. And those things are good. Those things, we want those things. But you can't get the cart before the horse. A true disciple runs to God for God. And listen, that can be, that can be something in your life today that we could call a faulty faith. You can come to, to Christ and you can have sincere faith. I mean, you can drift We're prone to wander and you can get to a place where you begin to kind of revert or begin to see Jesus or see God as some kind of genie and it's wrong. It's never right. Or it may be an indication that you have fake faith. And like Simon, you're somebody in the church, around the things of the church, listen, who look the part, but in your heart, you try to manipulate God to give you what you want. And that is not true saving faith. It is a kind of faith that, Simon has, but it's, it's, a, it's a faith that never denies self. It's a faith that never takes up your cross and follows Jesus. And as you continue, listen, this is where I'm going with this. As you continue to read, Peter harshly rebukes him. I mean, he, he, he basically speaks a curse over his life. He says, you know where you can take your silver and gold? You can read, that's what he says. And in verse 24, it looks like he may be repenting. Peter says, hey, you need to repent. And it looks like he may be repenting, but he's not. He, it's, it's, really, it's really pathetic. He's basically, he passes the buck over to, to Peter and says, hey, Peter, just pray for me. Pray all this bad stuff won't happen to me, but there's not true repentance. He's still sitting in a place of selfishness and self-preservation. And so Simon had an insincere faith. 
that eventually would be exposed. Let me ask you again, what kind of faith do you have this morning? Is it like Simon the Sorcerer's? Does it take that kind of form this morning? Or maybe, maybe it takes just the form of, man, you, you, you look the part, you're here, but, but you know your heart and your, the affections of your heart are far from this place. Maybe you, you look the part, you profess to be a believer, but there's no fruit to back up that claim. Do you know what James says? James says that faith in name only, he says this, it's faith without works is what? It's dead. And we believe here, we preach that we're saved by grace through faith alone, that grace alone is what saves us. We are saved by grace Alone, through faith. But listen, saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied with life change. So examine your, your faith this morning. And on one hand, Peter's rebuke in Acts chapter 8 should cause us to ask that question. It should cause us to tremble in a way to make sure that we have sincere faith. Because if we don't, listen, our soul is in danger of living for eternity separated from God. That's why he rebukes him so harshly. But on the other hand, what we're also reminded of when we go back in our mind to Timothy's life, that it's not only our own soul that's endangered. When you play that part, what you're doing is you're endangering the souls of the people in your home. You're endangering the souls of the kids that are in your care. Because listen, in the context of a home, in the context of a family, you can't fool kids for that long. It ain't going to happen. You can't fool people forever. And when kids are little, man, we can, we can fool them, right? We can say nice things about God. We can talk about God around the dinner table. We can say generally good things about God throughout our day. And to a child that may seem genuine, to a child that may seem like mom and daddy or grandpa or grandma love Jesus, but as they grow older, as their senses get sharper, as they grow more mature and their senses are more heightened, they know what's real and what's not real. They know what's genuine and it's not genuine. And they're way better at spotting that maybe than you give them credit for. So part of missional parenting is this, and grandparenting and spiritual parenting is this, having sincere, real faith. Do you have that this morning? Right? I know this is fed a little gloom and doom, but there's good news because if you're here this morning and you don't have sincere faith, if you don't have genuine faith, if you don't have authentic faith, that can change this morning. You can come to Jesus, not like a genie. You can come to God, not like a butler. You can come to him in humility and you can repent of your sin. You can come to Jesus. Not You don't come to him like he's a great teacher. He was a great teacher. But you don't come to him like he has a set of principles that you're to follow to try to achieve some better version of who you are. He came to do something that you can't do. He lived the perfect life you can't live. He died on the cross. And took the judgment of God instead of you. He died a substitutionary atoning death so that you can have life. And if you've repented and believed the gospel and fully surrendered to him, you have sincere faith. And if you don't, you can start there today. And if you are there today, listen. Once you trust in Jesus for the rest of your days, what you live to do, listen, is not to just possess sincere faith, but to demonstrate it, to put it on display for all the people that your life intersects with, especially in your home, which is not easy. Living this out in the context of family and marriage is hard. It's difficult. It's messy. Because nothing brings out sin and nothing brings out the worst part of who we are than marriage and family. I know you're not supposed to amen that out loud, but it's true. Why? Because you're in, you're, you're in a house full of other sinners. 
Right? We, 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 we have kids. We, we, we've begotten sinners. Happy Mother's Day. All right? I didn't say that in the child dedication part. I feel like that would have been kind of a downer. But everybody's a sinner. But listen, the way God's, and that's why it's difficult, but the way God's designed the family, it's a blessing. It's a gift. Marriage is a gift. Parenting is a gift. And he created it for that for us to enjoy it. There's joy in it. There's fulfillment in it. Yet at the same time, it, there, there's not anything like it when it comes to just it being this great tool of sanctification we have in Christ. And I'm telling you, nothing else will point out inconsistencies and sin in your life like those two things. And you know what? Every time sin rears its head in the context of your relationship with your kids or in your marriage or other relationships, every time failure rears its head, Every time that happens, it gives you an opportunity to put a real, sincere, genuine faith on display. Every time. The point of marriage, the point of parenting is not to walk through our home and walk through our life like we're perfect, like we got everything together. No, it gives us opportunities. The gospel frees us to admit that we don't have it together. And every time we sin, every time we wrong someone, every time there's an inconsistency in our life to where the name that we profess to live for doesn't match the way that we live. Every time that that happens, it gives us an opportunity to point our kids and to point people around us to the gospel. Every time we live in a way that isn't consistent with Jesus being our treasure. Every time we live in an inconsistent way that doesn't demonstrate that we believe the gospel. We have an opportunity to own it, to confess that sin, to repent, and to apologize to people. I can't tell you how many times I've had to tell my kids, hey, daddy, sorry. I should not have said that like that. Hey, the way that I just kind of got snippy with your mom. I shouldn't have done that. And that was wrong. I sinned against God. And I want you guys to know that 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 was wrong, that I've repented of it, that I've confessed my sin to him, and I've experienced God's forgiveness. But I need to ask y'all's forgiveness for that as well. You know what that does? It doesn't make you weak. It points them to their need for a savior. And some of you, I want to speak to some of you, because some of you, some of you are older than me in the room. I'm saying that in a very diplomatic way, because I don't know how to say that without offending somebody. But I have so much respect for you. I love that our church is multi-generational. And I look up to you and I learn from you. You've walked the path that I've walked, that I'm walking right now, parenting, early years of marriage. But I think there's a, I think there's a lie that the enemy likes to plant into the minds of those who are in their older years. Especially in messages like this, because some of you are hearing this and you're, you're going, man, if only I'd have heard more sermons like this when I was a young parent. Oh, man, I, I, feel like I, I feel like I didn't make the kind of impact that I could have made. I feel like I dropped the ball and you think that your time has passed with the impact that you think you can make on your adult children and in their life. Listen, you admit that to them with humility and you're going to make an impact. Man, for them to hear you in conversation, for it to organically come up for you to say things like, I just want you, man, I just cared. Hey, don't, when you tell your adult son or daughter, hey, don't worry about that so much. Listen, when I was, I cared way too much about success when I was, 
when y'all were little. There were times where I put in too much time late in the afternoon and in the evening at the office when I should have been at home with y'all. I got it wrong. I missed it. I mean, there's, there's times in my, in my early life, in my early walk with Christ, I wish I'd have leveraged my life more, my resources more for the mission of God. I wish I wouldn't have held on so tightly to the things of this world. And more. I, I wish I'd have held on to those things more loosely and invested more in the kingdom of God. When, you begin, when the gospel begins to change your rhetoric, this is what happens. When a generation, an older generation, begins to, the gospel begins to transform your rhetoric and you begin with, with humility and repentance, begin to articulate those things, what often happens is grandchildren and children pick up on that and there's changes that are made in their life in the next generation as a result of you actually verbalizing those things. So we need to demonstrate a sincere faith in front of them that involves, that involves an owning of our weakness. And then where that feels weak, God will take that and make it strong and will point them to the Savior. It's not just involving, though, owning our sin and owning our mistake, it also involves an intentionality in strategically pouring God's word into their life. Living out Deuteronomy 6, teaching them to the the word of God diligently, talking to them about it, why you walk, why you're driving on the way to school, on the way to practice at night before they go to bed, pouring the word of God into their life from an early age. Listen, you... You can choose to, to, to stand in that gap and disciple your kids or you leave them to this culture who's really good at discipling kids. And when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to a list of topics, this culture knows exactly what it believes and it's really good at indoctrinating your kids on how to think and how to view the world. The culture knows what it believes on those things. The question is, is do you? And if you don't know a whole lot, will you start? We start to live out Deuteronomy 6. I mean, that our homes, the goal is for our homes, literally for your lives. This doesn't just apply to, to young parents here, or to parents of teenagers here, it does, or to parents of college students, or to parents with adults. This applies outside of the context of even the home. That our lives should be a walking gospel school, pointing our kids, pointing those who are in that close proximity of our influence to Jesus Christ in life and godliness. And you know, every, every family dynamic is different. Every family dynamic here isn't exactly the same. They're different families. I mean, look at Timothy. He was raised basically by his grandma and his mom. Wouldn't it have been, would have, God's design for the home have been more experienced had his dad been in the picture? Absolutely, but it wasn't. And you may be, hey, you may be in a home where Dad's involved, loves Jesus. Mom's involved and loves Jesus. You got grandparents who love Jesus. What a wonderful scenario that is. And if that is the case, Dad, make sure you're stepping up. Make sure that your mom, that, that your wife's not having to step up and be a Eunice. Or you should be stepping up and being the spiritual leader of that home. But sometimes the ideal design is an experience. Sometimes mom has to operate as Eunice. Sometimes mom has to operate as a spiritual leader because dad is spiritually absent or just physically absent. Or Lois, there's a grandmother here, a grandfather who's had to step up. And I want you to know God can use it. I believe God has a special place in his heart when that happens. But again, I want to say to the dads here today on this Mother's Day, 
And that if you're not standing in that place, if you're not standing in that gap, if you're not leading the charge in your home spiritually, you need to do that. That is not to be passed off to someone else. One of the greatest gifts you can give your wife this Mother's Day is to step up to the plate and be the man of God that God's designed you to be and saved you to be. But again, for some, the dynamic might be different. Like Timothy's, it's not ideal. But something I often say, especially in our family series, and I want to remind you on this Mother's Day because some of you are struggling in some of these areas, is that when God's design, listen, when God's design isn't present, when the ideal isn't being experienced, is that not some of the most incredible times that God's spirit chooses to flex and perform miracles? That's what happens in Timothy's case. I mean, these two godly ladies, these two godly ladies pour into this young man. Did they have any realization who he would be? Did they have any realization that 2,000 years later, that first and second Timothy would be letters that have, that have been used to change lives for eternity? Did they have any realization that, that their faithfulness day in and day out to cultivate a gospel school in their home, doing the best with what they had, even with his dad out of the picture, that the result would be he would be the right-hand man to the Apostle Paul who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else and is the greatest missionary and the greatest Christian, some will say, to ever live. So don't underestimate you stepping into the role God's placed you in and trusting God, possessing a sincere faith, acquainting those entrusted to you with the only thing that will make them wise for salvation, investing truth into their life. It does not guarantee that when they're 70 years old, they're gonna be following Jesus. Like that part of it's not your job. That part's up to God. That's the Spirit's job. We're called to invest. We're called to plant. We're called to pour truth into their lives. And I just want, just real practically, we got resources to help you with that. If you don't know where to start, don't leave today without seeing me, without going to our kids' ministry counter, without seeing our student pastor, and we will point you in a direction to get some resources into your hands to help you begin to cultivate a gospel school in your home. But as I close, I want, I want to leave you encouraged. Because these types of sermons can, sometimes you can leave a little bit more driven by guilt than you are by something better than that. And I want you to leave here today fueled up with something better than that. And I'm talking to those of you who are followers of Christ. You've got a sincere faith, but you, in your life, it's just, you know, even today, you're very aware of how broken you are. You're very aware of how much you fail. And what I want you to remember this morning is I want you to remember that in order for you to cultivate a gospel school in your home, in order for you to cultivate a gospel-centered relationship with your kids and with those who are in close proximity with you, that's not going to happen in the level of effectiveness that God wants it to happen if your heart's not being continuously blown away with the gospel. If you're not being fueled by the gospel, if you're not remembering continuously, listen, how, what your relationship with your heavenly parent looks like in Christ Jesus. How God sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. That you have a heavenly father who delights over you. You're like, you, know, you don't understand. I'm not good at this. You don't understand. I keep dropping the ball. Listen, you have a heavenly father who delights over you no matter what part of the journey that you're on. Whether you feel like you're having a good week or whether you feel like you're having a bad week. If you know him, if you've trusted in him, he delights over you.
Camp your heart out in Romans chapter eight, verse one. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He died on the cross. He gave you his righteousness and he knew you. He did that. He knew what he was getting into with you and still yet he still did it. That's good news. He delights over you. A good father delights over their kids. Some of you, especially you young moms and you older moms will remember this when, especially around this time, you're, your kids will bring home those little Mother's Day cards and they got drawings on them. Your kids will bring that home from school every once in a while when they're four or five. And it's fun to see those, right? And when they bring that and put it before you, especially those first few, you look at them and you're, in your head, you're like, I have no idea what that is. That just looks like a big blob of black and some circles. And, and your, my daughter says, it's a butterfly. I was like, now in that moment, I'm not going to go, that's not a butterfly. Come over here, let me show you a picture of a butterfly. Don't, don't say that this is a butterfly until you can draw it like a butterfly. Right? Did I say that? No, she showed it to me and I went, you drew this? Are you sure you didn't trace this? Are you sure this isn't a picture? This is, this is the best butterfly I've ever seen in my entire... You gotta be kidding. Yeah, I drew it. You drew this? I'm gonna go show some people. Mom, look what she drew. Look at this butterfly. This is a this is a word. Hey, Emma, this belongs in a museum. I'm gonna put this in my office right on the right on the wall. As people walked into my office, they're like, hey man, what's up with the what is that? It's like a it's like a hairball grew wings. What is that? What do you mean? That's a butterfly, bro. That's the best butterfly I've ever seen in my life. Why? Because that's my daughter. And I delight over her. And if you're here, you have a heavenly father who delights over you. Listen, rest in that right now. Doesn't grade your self-worth by your performance as a mom, as a wife. It's for everybody. If you're a blood-bought daughter of the king, if you're a blood-bought son of the king, he has spoken He who has authority to do so has spoken over your life and declared that you are his, declared that you are loved, declared that you are embraced. Listen, he doesn't love some future perfect version of you. He loves you. Rest in that gospel truth this morning. Rest in that gospel truth. You say, well, I'm still left with some problems this morning. I'm still left with kind of where to go from here. You have a heavenly father who delights over you. Listen, especially in those moments of humility, of confession of sin and repentance. Isn't that awesome? That if you stumble, that if you fall and you get up and you repent, he rejoices. He doesn't hold the failure over your head. He rejoices in that repentance and that's my encouragement to you this morning. Is for this place to be full of people confessing sin, of people recommitting their homes to God, of recommitting, you know, making their marriage more gospel, a clear picture, of a place filled with, with hearts that are contrite, surrendering their whole lives to Him. Let's pray.